ride with me in my foul life. What's up, what's up, what's up? Foul Life Podcast back at you. We're coming at you from the great state of Oklahoma. Have y'all ever heard that song, Okie from Muskogee? The great Merle Haggard. I'm just an Okie from Muskogee. Where even squares can have a ball. I don't have the words right. White Lightning's the biggest thrill of all. We, uh, God, that song is awesome. The Courthouse, I'm trying to think of the lyrics. Do you know the lyrics? Not really. I'm just an Okie from White Lightning. Yeah. The biggest thrill of all. See, like, I, people say that song when they hear that line, White Lightning, and we're going to get into introducing my awesome guest here in a second, but um, what do you think it means when you hear, we're White Lightning still the biggest thrill of all? I thought, because I lived in Kansas for a while, I've been in Oklahoma a lot, and the lightning storms around this part of the country can be awesome. So I thought that, like, you know, an Okie from Oklahoma or somebody from Kansas could be entertained by the sky and Mother Nature and thunder and lightning, and, like, that's the biggest thrill that you're going to get. But then other people said that White Lightning is like a moonshine, running moon, run shine, running illegal, you know, alcohol or whatever. But I don't know if Merle would have said that that was the biggest thrill of all. Maybe it was the biggest thrill of running illegal stuff during pro. Prohibition. I don't know. What do you think that that meant, Russ? Well, I think you know you're you're exactly right. It uh, uh, it it's about alcohol. It's not about uh, the, the weather. Uh, Oklahoma, especially southeastern part of Oklahoma, was um, real real active in in stills, and um, that continued on up until the introduction of marijuana, growing of marijuana. And um, then the stills kind of took a back seat. But those families that were down there continued, you know, their illegal activities by growing illicit or illegal marijuana and putting it on a market. And um, so the white lightning refers to alcohol, not really? the weather. Uh-huh. Gosh, he says it's so nonchalant. That it's the biggest thrill of all. Like, of course, that would be a thrill to run. Like, that's I guess that's what people were doing to get their kicks. I, a lot of people, I don't know if you've heard this, and I, I don't know, I don't have a whole lot of study behind it, but I, I have been told that NASCAR was kind of invented because of the same kind of thing. Have you heard that? Yes, I have, and I think that's that's uh, I think that's there's there's truth to that, especially over in Georgia and Tennessee and in those areas over in there where they had a lot of stills and a lot of activity. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd put your product in the, in the car, and uh, they'd soup those cars up so they could outrun the sheriffs, you know, and the law enforcement. And so uh, that kind of was the beginning, really, of the NASCAR uh, situation, you know, with, with people driving fast and souping their cars up and getting away from the police. Because NASCAR does hit harder when it's down. And I, I think the birthplace <laughs> of it's Carolina. Yeah. Um, North, South Carolina, I don't know for sure. But, yeah, you got... Talladega in Alabama, you got Daytona in Florida. I mean, the the, the South and Southeast, the it's kind of the redneck motorsport. From and and for the last two two three decades, it was the second most viewed sport in the world behind soccer. Yeah, like that's yeah. crazy. But yeah, I heard I heard yeah. that too. But today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is brought to you by Flatline Outfitters, the premier duck and goose hunting waterfowl expert guide service in the great state of Oklahoma. Blue Moore, Trey Miller, their entire crew. I'm witnessing it even more this year than I ever have. I've been coming here six years, and the evidence is so much more pure this year with the passion and the dedication of these guides and the crew, the professionalism, the scouting, the hard work, the decoy spreads. I'm talking not one corner cut. So if you're looking 
to book, not just to kill a mallard or to kill a lesser canned goose, but I'm talking to see the power of what Oklahoma has to offer with huge flocks of lesser canned geese, awesome groups of mallards over water, peanut fields, wheat fields, corn fields, the camaraderie, the hospitality, the lodging, the food, just the pure dedication to the experience they want you to have. Remember, Guys got a lot of pressure on them. Outfitters always have a lot of pressure on them. That's why I don't do it. I want to perform. I want to make sure that my clients are taken care of on a daily basis. And sometimes Mother Nature is not going to cooperate. And that's where the professionalism and the entire experience comes into place with Flatline Outfitters, Oklahoma, United States of America, is that you are on them 90% of the time. But if there is a day where you don't have to you know, kill a limit or you don't get to kill a limit, I should say, Limits aren't everything. We got to keep in mind as clients of guides and outfitters that they're doing what they can to put us in the position to have a great hunt. You always hear the words, the hunt of a lifetime. I don't like to hear that a lot because it's thrown around way too much in my opinion. Every hunt is special. Every hunt should be honored. You should have humility for every time we get to put foot, our feet on that dirt and set up a decoy spread or chase a turkey or chase a whitetail or a, a big old sheep up in British Columbia or mallard ducks in Oklahoma and Kansas and Arkansas and Canada geese think about how lucky we are to be able to have this privilege and the right to hunt like my good buddy Ted Nugent says it's not just a privilege Chad we have the right to hunt it says it in the Bible that these animals were put on earth so we can provide our families and friends a bounty of a high protein non-injected no enzymes just straight natural meat so think about that when you're booking a hunt and i would look no further if you want an unbelievable experience check out flatline outfitters blue more trey miller their entire crew absolutely awesome today's episode of the foul life podcast is also brought to you by our friends again from the great state of texas paris texas bodyguard bumpers i was looking at our bumpers again today Trey went out and we hooked him up with the Malakote family and Trey, one of the partners and owners and founders of Flatline Outfitters in Oklahoma, has the front and rear bodyguard bumper system. And I was looking at his truck. He's got a Chevy. We all obviously run all Fords from our good partner Corning Ford, but bodyguard bumpers look good, but they're practical. Things that are born out of necessity are my favorite. And when you're in the field in a hunting company and you're like, man, today I'm looking at my hand right now. What do you think that's from? That's from pressing stakes for uh-huh. the last three days. De- decoys. Yeah, so I'm pressing decoy mm-hmm. stakes into the ground. And all of a sudden, I can't even bend my hand. It hurts so bad and blistered up, right? Because I don't do a lot of manual labor. That's what everybody says about me, Russ. So my <laughs> hands are pretty, you know, they're pretty childlike. Yeah. So I got blisters. I was thinking, man, what about a cool glove that you could have good warmth and mobility in? And then maybe a little slide plate here that you could slide in and it cups around that stake and you can just pop them into the ground, you know, when you're when you're putting out that many stakes and the mm-hmm. stand, you're not using your stand. So things that are born out of necessity to me are awesome. And this company in, in Paris, Texas, Bodyguard Bumpers, they hit they have a, a, a cattle ranch and they hit a cow one night and it destroys the front end of their Dodge oh, yeah. truck. Yeah. And their son, Grant, goes into the shop and he starts fabricating and welding this bumper and he puts mm-hmm. it on. And what happens? Yeah. His dad's buddy sees it. And he's like, where'd you get that? He's like, oh, my son built it. And then yeah. that farmer says, well, I want one. And then his buddy sees it. And then all of a sudden, Bodyguard Bumpers is born and they're tough. They're rugged. They look good aesthetically. You can put all of your rigid light bars and LED lights and fog lights and running lights. And I'm just talking unbelievable protection and think about the security of going down the highway or a freeway or a dirt road there's deer there's auto accidents there's anything that can happen here a lot of deer around here i mean i've seen so many 
we hit three in one day in South mm -hmm. Dakota. Yeah. I mean, it can happen. Yeah, and can. those those these bodyguard these grill these grill protecting bumper systems, and they, you don't have to have a grill protector. They make all different types of styles. But Kelly Malico and her husband Grant, their entire crew at Bodyguard Bumpers, thank you so much for the partnership and the support of the Foul Life TV, the Foul Life Podcast, and all of our brands here at TFL. I'm excited to have you, man. Thank you, Russ thank Higby, you, Oklahoma. We're sitting on your family, the Higby family homestead and farmstead. And we are also sitting in what you have built and has become famous in this neck of the wor world, the Law Dog Hunting Lodge. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at your logo right now. It's a sheriff badge, a police badge, a law enforcement badge. It's got a mallard flying through it, and it's got a Canada goose above it that you'll recognize off of the United States refuge system signs that you see on refuges on the blue and white signs. That's right. It's just a killer logo. And this is kind of like one of those things to where when people come in here, we've had Chase Rice in here and my good buddy Les Nesbitt and all of us, and they look at it. And Chase Rice, who's got a pretty damn good life, goes, I want to build a room just like this on my yeah, that's property. that's what he said. That's a big honor to you to hear <laughs> yeah. that, yeah? Yeah, that's what he said. So yeah. tell me a little bit about this place. We're sitting on your actual family homestead here, the Higby homestead. <clears throat> when, did, when did this come about? You showed me some of the documentation on it, but give me a little bit about the history. Okay, well, uh, let's see. In about... Um 1889, uh, Oklahoma had a, a run, Oklahoma, run into Oklahoma, and, and uh, they lined up on the Kansas border, and they fired a cannon, and the people came across the border, and they staked out their, their claim. And then you went to the, the uh, nearest courthouse and registered that, and if you stayed on that land for a period of time, I think it was five years, uh, and it made an improvement on that on that uh, land, then uh, the president would sign a land grant, and you got the land for free. And that's exactly what happened with the Higbys. My grandfather and grandmother homesteaded this and uh, filed their claim. And uh, about 1909, I believe, uh, uh, President Taft signed a land grant and gave them you know, uh, the, the, the 160 acres. And they lived on that land and raised four children out here. And about 1930, my grandmother said, you know, we need to probably move to Oklahoma City or somewhere and get these kids a good education. So they left the farm. But when they did, my grandfather, or my uncle, uh, took it over. And they have farmed it for ever since that. Um, and it stayed in the family for all those years. And I would come out here as a kid. And um, they would call my dad. These farmers around here would call my dad and say, please bring Russ and you all come out and please get these ducks and geese off of my wheat field. They're just killing us. And so that was my introduction into duck and goose hunting. And I fell in love with it at a young age. And it stayed with me, you know, even up until now. So, <clears throat> uh, like I say, they, they signed that land grant and they lived on the land. And they had three houses out here. The first one was a sod house. And it collapsed after about two years. And then they built a house down on the corner. And it, there was a big cherry orchard tree, or cherry tree orchard down there. And it burned down. And the house caught on. And, of course, there wasn't any firefighters. So it burned to the ground. And then they moved it. Uh, to the center of the 160 and built another house and the original well that my grandfather dug by hand and hit water at 11 feet and there's a big aquifer underneath this land that runs several hundred miles and it's real good water and all of the Higbys had a real long life and my grandmother would tell me that you know the reason that we lived a long time and did real good and was real healthy because the water was real good out there so don't ever do anything to mess up that water and I told her I sure wouldn't so in about 1970, <clears throat> um, she was sick and dying of cancer, and she said, I'm going to give you that farm. 
and so I told her that I would I would be you know most happy to take charge of that and oversee it. And uh, she said, uh, "Just do me two favors: don't ever cut any trees and don't ever sell it." And I said, "I sure won't." So uh, it stayed with me for another another ten or fifteen years, and about uh, nineteen. Oh, 85 or 90, uh, I got to looking at it and uh, thought, you know, I, I should probably do something with that 160 acres. And so <clears throat> I decided that uh, 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 the Fort Cobb Lake was close here and it was real good for waterfowl. And I'd hunted it for years and I thought, you know, I might be able to open up a some sort of a lodge. So that was the beginning of that. And uh, I played with that for several years and then and then uh, built this place and started housing people. And it's continued on. It's been very successful. When you say you, in 1970, your grandma mm-hmm. tells you that you're going to get the family homestead and farm. Right. I mean, you're, you're, I think you told me you're somewhere in your mid-60s. We don't need to go over age, but you're probably in your young 20s at this time. Yes. Um, is there pressure on you when your family comes to you and you're the one that, that is going to take over the family name and the, the family f- homestead? Do you feel pressure? Do you feel a huge sense of pride? And then correlate that today, Russ. Correlate it at, for today's times of the pride you have in bringing people up here and the feeling that it gives them. The the hospitality. You roll out the red carpet. You're a very nice person. Kevin Brooks, our good friend from Ground Dogger Solutions in Kentucky, mm-hmm. was just here a couple weeks ago. He yep. sent us pictures saying, hey, I heard you're coming here. You guys are going to love it like i mentioned chase and Les. everybody loves it here yep. tell talk to me a little bit about that that sense of value and that sense of pride when a family heirloom like this is yours and you, it's your it's your responsibility now to make sure that it's taken care of the best of its ability i think initially that uh, that uh, i probably didn't think you know too much about that uh i, I was ecstatic to get the 160 acres but i don't really think that i knew what i really had at that time and as as time rolled on uh and and some things uh happened and i started messing with the lodge idea i started thinking you know how lucky am i to have this you know and and be able to provide this and have a lot of fun and it started like that and i would bring agents out or friends out and we would hunt and then come over here and stay and it just kind of grew from that so Certainly, there's a you know you keep you start building a lot of pressure on yourself simply because you want to make it better and better and better, and so about 1999 or 2000, I opened up and started having my first guests come out here. So I've been doing it since then, and and uh, I've improved just about every year. And I think you'll probably see when you start rolling the tape the things that I have on the wall. Everything in here practically has a story that, that relates to. Uh, our family with regards to uh, hunting or 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 or, or uh, relationships. So you're not a hoarder. You're like me. You're a, co- you're a collector. I am of legitimacy and authenticity yes. and yes. stories. Yes. Okay. So that's a, that's that's funny you say this because last night I made a comment to you that I'm not leaving here until I take the X-lax. Sign. <laughs> now the reason I said that is that before my dad passed away. In 2006, one of his favorite sayings was, I'm going to go through you like an x like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like uh-huh. he's going to whip my ass, right? Like, oh, you yeah, ain't going to yeah. take much for the old man to whip your ass. You probably heard that, right? Oh, yeah, I've heard well, that. Well, give me, yeah. kind of give me an idea of, of, <clears throat> of what is that? Like, that's, that's a thermometer. That's something that, that you put up on, that your family had around here. Was it on an old gas station around here? Like, what, what, what's the story behind that? Well, actually, uh, uh, I started collecting signs and, and old memorabilia. 
years ago, about 1970, 1975, uh, I would go around to, to garage sales and, and estate sales and stuff. And if I saw something that you know was interesting to me, I'd latch onto it. And that's how that came about. And I saw that in a garage and uh, purchased it along with oh several other signs. And I've, I've traded signs and traded up and traded down and so on and so forth. And through my life, I've just had a different kind of of uh, hobbies, you know, with regards to collection of things like old in, old advertising, the signs that you see. Um, uh, I really like to collect old shotgun boxes, shell boxes, Super X and Remington and so on, the old, old stuff. And, uh, for example, like on the wall over there is my grandfather's 1929-1930 uh, uh, hunting jacket, you know, along with some cork decoys that he had when, when I was little. I can remember seeing those things floating on, on the water, you know, and hunting over them. And so I just kept all that stuff. And of course, my wife would say, get rid of that, get you know, get... You know, so when I bought or when I built this place, you know, it was a, a natural to take all that stuff away from <laughs> away from my house, you know, and put it out here. It was perfect. And I, I just continued to do so. And I had a ton of stuff that I'd collected and uh, um, have, had purchased and so on. And so that's that's kind of how it started. And I still am taken by that. Then you then you couple that type of uh, interest with police work, which I did for almost 40 years. And uh, I got in the habit or the, 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 the uh, um, uh, wanted to start looking for badges. I had a badge collection. And then I went into handcuffs, old, old, uh, uh, old time handcuffs, you know, the type that, that uh, you see in, in a Western movie where they tighten down with a big screw. And uh, so I was taken by a lot of that stuff uh, and still have it today. They're, they're little little areas here in the den that uh, I have have those things in so I guess that's how it's kind of all started you know just kind of haphazardly uh, the pressure yeah there's there's pressure I mean you know um, I had a I had a good friend named Justin Tackett who who had a, a television so show for years uh, with a, a dog he had named Yella and um, I would talk to him and he he said you know Russ there's uh, about five things it, it takes to have a real good lodge and, and he told me, he says, you know, have real good hot water, have a good bed, have good food. Those are the three things. The fourth thing is, is, is the weather. And the fifth thing is you cannot predict the birds. So, but if you can, if you can handle those first three things, you'll probably get your guests back and back and back again. But, uh, uh, and so I really did. I listened to that and I concentrated on that and tried to make this place as, as relaxing. When you drive through the gate down there, I want people to go, my, this is just really nice. I can really relax here. And I've used it for events. I've used it for weddings. I've used it for several things, you know, business meetings, as well as, as, um, uh, uh you know, lodge for hunters. Real quick, before we go into what you mentioned in your law enforcement career. And I think we're going to probably do that on part two because I have, you're an interesting human being, obviously with your past. I'm looking at a sign of airborne special forces. You're a <laughs> Vietnam vet, special forces, your law enforcement of 40 years, head of Oklahoma narcotics department. You've done undercover um, that I'm so interested in about the anxiety of that. This could take on the human psyche, but answer me this, Mr. Russ, I'm looking around here in this lodge, and we're in a place where there's big whitetail. I see there's one Rio Grande turkey behind me, strutting, beard down. But it's all, it's 99.9% .9 ducks and geese. Why? Why do you, 
insist on this waterfowl lifestyle? How did it, you mentioned before about how it got in your blood and that you just fell in love with it. But all these years later, we're talking a good 50 years now, probably. We're looking at Les. Les is getting ready to turn 81 years old next month. He's in, he's in his, you know, 70th waterfowl season. Mm -hmm. I'm getting ready to go to Wyoming with Les next week to meet Mr. John LaMonica, who, you know, he's 91. He's in his like... 85th water he started when he was six he's in his 85th waterfowl season what about you why ducks and geese well it's a it's a great question it's interesting uh i'm glad you asked me that uh i guess probably the one thing that sticks in my mind is uh my dad was a football coach and uh um he, he would have kids come through that played for him and then would graduate and go on to school and and become coaches or principals or something like that and so <clears throat> this one particular time i was probably about nine or ten years old and uh one of his ex ball players football players called him and said coach do you want to come down on the red river said um i have a duck blind down there and bring your son and come down and hunt and so he agreed so i remember getting out of school to go and that was a big deal you know we were, I was, a, I was from a house full of school teachers and coaches, you know, you didn't miss school. And so I got to miss and we went down there and I remember getting in there in the early morning hours and it was a driftwood blind right on the red river. It was on a sandbar and it was so, so cold and the wind was blowing. And I had a little 410 shotgun that uh, my grandma, grandfather had given to my dad, my dad had given to me. And um, I was just about to freeze to death. And uh, my dad looked over and he said, are you cold? And I said, yes. And he said, well, just hold on. He said, there's some ducks right above you. And so I remember looking through that that uh, driftwood blind. And, of course, that was a neat thing because, you know, kids are into forts and stuff like that. But this was really a neat little deal. And so I looked through the wood and looked up, and the this greenhead mallard was just fighting the wind. And I could see it blinking and darting and dashing around. And it was just looked like it was just right there where I could reach out and touch it. And it circled around and landed on a sandbar about 25 feet from me. My dad said, shoot him. And so I pulled the hammer back on that little 410 with a two and three quarter inch shell and shot that green head. And it limped around and flopped and I ran out there and got it. And that was it. That was the most beautiful duck I'd ever seen. And I guess that was the thing that turned me on. And to this day, I love the green head. I love the mallard. I love the duck hunt. I love the goose hunt. And that's just what I've concentrated on. Did you, did all the cold go away? Were you all of a sudden just warm as hell? Like all of a sudden, like you just forgot all about your your toes freezing off? Didn't even bother me. You know, isn't that crazy how that does it? Yeah, it is. Your hands could be just like ready to fall off working the call. And all of a sudden you're just, the the geese come and you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm not cold anymore. Just a mindset. But I remember that. I remember it well. It's just like it happened yesterday. I be honest with me, though. I don't want to. I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize. But be honest with me. Do you still love it as much as you did when you were twenty, thirty? I mean, you're you're you know, like when you start to get this attitude in the South, they say things like, "I'm I'm, I'm mad at them." You yeah. know, they, I'm mad at the ducks, right? Like, I, they, 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 they just want to chase them hard. And there's, I've always said, Mr. Russ, is that there's different levels of maturity in your hunting career, just like other parts of life. But right. you go from 
you know what you do with the 410 and cocking the hammer back and then you go to like i got to get limits i want to get limit and then in today's world of self gratification and social media we want to show pictures. people like pictures mm -hmm. and, you, and yep. memories and i love that i love pictures and memories i don't necessarily agree with the likes and all of that part of it but mm -hmm. at this point in your career in 60s are young like you got i mean you got 17 years of i don't know like he how old are you going to be? Right? You're going to be 81, right, Les? You got, he still loves it as much. I, I got to oh, tell yeah, you the story yeah. real quick before you answer this question. My daughter was eight on her first duck hunt, a little 410 mm -hmm. out of a boat blind yeah. on one of uh, a duck club that Les is a member of called the Canvas Bat Club in Nevada. Oh, yeah. It's been around since the 1890s. Um, yeah. Awesome heritage and history and photos on the walls of this place. Um, Les, this was in the first week of February, it happens a week after the regular duck season starts, the youth hunt, and he's getting ready to turn 80. She's getting ready to turn nine, and they both have tears in their eyes after she shoots this canvas <clears throat> back. This bull comes oh, in. Oh, wow. And we were getting a few opportunities, and this big bull comes in, and I had my buddy Remy Warren there. I'm sure you've heard the name Remy Warren. Um, but he was helping her because I'm a lefty, and I was having a hard time getting my daughter, who's a right-handed shooter, to get her head down right. And, and, you know, we had practiced and shot trap and sporting clays and all that, but she was so excited because these ducks were coming in just floating with them big canvas back feet down. And Remy got her lined up right, and she made a shot that I was just, like, blown away. I'm talking 35 yards right to left, let it perfect. And I'm talking headshot this duck with a 410. Wow. Didn't even move a muscle. Les's dog, jeez, uh, I'm now I'm forgetting his name. What is the dog's name? Pistol goes out. I'm, I've known Pistol for years. Pistol goes out, brings this canvas back, and we all get tears in our eyes. Oh, I'm yeah. crying. My daughter's crying. Les is teared up. <laughs> now, my point in telling you this is that he's about to turn 80. Yeah. He's been there, done that. He's in the Boone and Crockett Hall of Fame. Yeah. He shot the biggest, the biggest polar bears and elk and moose and all this shit, right? And still has the love. D how do you, how do you explain that? Like, there's no way that you like. I talk to baseball players. Like, do you miss the game? Hell no, man. I don't want to go to spring training. I talk to UFC fighters. You want to get back in there and fight? Hell no, man. I don't. I don't miss the game at all. Mm -hmm. But this hunting game, you can't get it out of your blood once it's in there. No, you're exactly right. And I think that you, uh, I think you hit on it a little bit. And that is, you go through phases. You know, you know it's 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 all about. Uh, the limit, you know, I want to limit out. If you don't, you're about half mad, and you kind of get through that, and uh, then you start uh, enjoying just the hunt, and then you introduce yourself into, like, dogs. I've had real good luck with my lab dogs and the training portion of that, and, and just watching them hunt. Like this morning, I hunted geese, and uh, my dog Darby is a little female, and she's just so lovable. I mean, she can run 100 miles an hour, and she would tear out of there and go get those geese and bring them back and sit down beside you and i mean that to me uh i don't even have to shoot anymore really that's just so much fun to watch her work so it, you, you just go through steps you know you graduate from one to the other and and i guess that's the reason that you just continue to love do you still enjoy and i'm bringing less back into this is we put out 60 dozen full body decoys today no silhouettes <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking 60 dozen full body Canada goose decoys today, a couple specks and blues thrown in. He's out there at 80, 81 years old, putting stakes in the ground, carrying 10, 12 dozen decoys at a time, or 10 or 12 decoys at a time yeah. at 81 years old. Now, look, age is just a number. I get that. That's what they say. But you you, you got to have some kind of love for this shit to be out there at 4.30 in the morning doing that. For sure. Right? So do you still enjoy 
the hardships? Do you still enjoy the letdowns? Do you still enjoy the, the, the overall just work ethic that you have to have to be consistently successful at this? Or have you gotten to the point in your life now to where you're like, eh, you guys go set up the decoys. I'll be out there in a while kind of attitude. I've only hunted with you one time on the river that day. And I know we're going to share some more hunts this week, but where's your mind at right now, as far as the entire experience goes day by day? Cause you could kill ducks and geese here every day in Oklahoma when it's oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where's your mindset? Do you enjoy the whole process still? I do. You know, it's a sting of the battle. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that you ever get uh, completely shed of that. Um, but again, I think you graduate through uh, different different uh, likes and dislikes with regards to the hunting and the experience. And uh, at this point in time, you know, I still I still like getting out. I still enjoy it. Uh, Heck no, it's not as easy as it was when I was younger, you know, um, the decoys and, and, and uh, the tote in the bags and walking to and from the cars and so on trucks, uh, you know, it's getting tougher and I can see that, you know, I can feel it in my bones more or less, you know, I don't know how many more years I can do it, but, but I'm going to do it until I can't. I mean, that's just the way I am. It's just, I love it that much. You mentioned it when you were six and your dad brought you out and you were freezing, you're in your 60s now. No, I'm older than that. You're in your 70s. I'm older than that. You're you're older than that. I'm I'm 80. Yes. Swear to God. Yes. Did you know this? No, I couldn't hear what you said. You're 80. Mm-hmm. No, you're not. I am. He's 80 years old. Well, yeah. same age. Holy shit! I yeah, thought I you know. told me you were 65. No. Huh? Was I just imagining this? I think you must have. <laughs> Damn it, Jack Daniels. Um. <laughs> um <laughs> The heyday of hunting, you hear people say, man, I wish I was hunting during the glory years, the golden years. Yeah. The skies were full of ducks. There's more ducks in the flyaway now than ever. I know things have changed. I get it. But this talk year. to me a little bit about your thought on that. <clears throat> and also, that six-year-old kid, now I can take my daughter out in this revolutionized gear mm-hmm. with decoys that are too real. We've, breeded, we've already bred a smarter bird. Mm-hmm. You have technology with wind protection and, and, and moisture protection and insulation and all kinds of things that you can stay in the field longer, drier, warmer, more comfortable. Yes, we're in the golden years. I mean, we're in the golden day of hunting to where you can introduce a kid. You can, you can, you can just, you could go out there and, and have confidence of like, Hey, I'm not going to get wet. I'm not going to get cold. I remember people talking to me about their canvas boots or, or their, their, their overalls or whatever they were wearing that, yeah. They would be soaked and miserable. You can't introduce somebody to this lifestyle and expect them to be like, oh, yeah, I want to go again. Talk to me a little bit about your mentality of like you've hunted. Now that I know your age, which holy shit, good for you, brother. Um, You've hunted in a lot of different decades of this revolution of of, or the evolution, I should say, Mm -hmm. of waterfowl hunting. Are we living in the golden age of it right now, or would you rather it be in the 70s, where the 80s the best, where the 90s the best? Or I know 99 in Arkansas was like the dream season, right? That was the yeah. first year I ever hunted the flooded timber. That's what they put on record is like, man, that was the year you wanted to be in Arkansas trees. Yeah. Do you think we're living in a better era right now to be more successful as hunters with the gear we have? And, and talk to me a little bit about that. I do. I think uh, I think you're exactly right. You know, they they made improvements. You know, the, uh, uh, the uh, Ducks Unlimited and those organizations have uh, continued to to uh, uh, fund breeding areas and so on. Now this year it's 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 bad, but uh, that's because of the weather and the fires and so on. But it's been good, and so. Uh, and and the limits are another thing. You know, I can remember we went to 
we went to a point system at one time here in Oklahoma, and then it was three ducks, and then it was it was two geese, and now it's eight geese and 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 uh, five uh, ducks. You know, you can you can kill a, a lot of mallards. You know, it's worth going out. So I think it's improved, and those organizations I think have helped do that. Those conservation groups, uh, uh, you know, have really have really led the way with regards to that. So. Um, I just believe that you're exactly right with regards to the golden years are here, and they're you know I, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade uh, going back for anything. I, when I first started uh, water hunting for birds, I had a pair of rubber hip boots that were kind of uh, dry rotted out, and so I would just kind of guesstimate how long I could stay warm after I got in the water, and I would avoid trying to get in the water. I'd throw my decoys out, and I had a long pole, and I'd bring them back with that so that I didn't have to get in the water because once you did, your time was limited because you were just going to freeze to death. So the equipment with regards to uh, uh, booting up, uh, uh, hip waders, chest waders, uh, gear, jackets, um, evolution of 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 uh, keeping people dry and warmer oh has helped so much uh that that helps with your hobby you know you, you go out there and you get cold and 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 you're not doing very good and you get disappointed disappointed real, real quick so you know those things have helped with with hunting i want to make sure that the audience understands that i've, I've always admitted mr russ on these shows that i'm really bad at math when i told the audience when your grandma said hey you're taking over the the family property and the farmstead and the homestead yeah. i said you were in your early 20s i thought you were 65 at that time when i said that okay so now i know your age yeah. he's 80 years old do you know this that's crazy right this is it makes me feel awesome well, so what's good. the girl on tv say age uh, you know age is nothing but numbers and mine's unlisted mine's unlisted <laughs> i love it so yeah. I want to keep going down this waterfowl road with you because I find it so amazing that before I was born, the greenheads were doing the same shit they're doing today, cupping exactly. up and sailing and checking up and and you always think like, man, was it all, was it ever this good? Did we could could they sound like this on a call? Did the ducks act like this? I, I, there there's so many feelings that go through my body about those words like trailblazers and pioneers and people that have been doing it. You know, there's the 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 topic of market hunting and yeah. how people you know like that's where the possession limit came from and the daily <clears> limits <throat> came from because we didn't want to go out and kill 150 meat greenheads a day just because we could, right? So, right. but I often think about the people or the people, you know, like you and Les that came before me. And there was people that came before you guys. Sure, We've been hunting since the beginning of time. And I, I want to keep going down that road, but you also have so many other details about your life and your career, um, military, special forces, Vietnam vet, narcotics, undercover, police work, blue line, first responder. You've been there, done that on so many different levels. I want to, I want to, go into part two i want to have a little podcast series with you because we are getting summoned by your new friend chase rice um we're going to um celebrate new year's eve with chase rice in oklahoma city tonight Mm -hmm. but i think that one of the things that we need to touch on before we get out of the waterfowl deal i want to end this podcast part one of my new friend and i'm going to know that we're going to become real good friends mr russ higby because he's a badass human being um <laughs> anybody that gets an opportunity to visit law dog hunting lodge in oklahoma you have to do so but talk to me a little bit about your heart and your soul 
and the the people. Just in the last 72 hours, you've become friends with Les, who's your age. You've become le- friends with a country music star that has number one hits on the radio that sells out arenas, Chase Rice. You've become friends with people that are in the duck hunting business. You had Terry Demon here from Mojo. Mm-hmm. You're a mentor and a friend to Trey Miller, one of the founders and owners of Flatline Outfitters, one of our presenting sponsors of tonight's episode. Um, talk to me about the people. I've, I've always said, if you really want to get to know somebody, get in a duck blind with them. You can tell within five minutes if you're going to be long-term friends with somebody in this in this game. I don't. People say, "Well, you could do that on a golf course," and I argue. I'm like, "No, you can't, because golf sucks. It's a it's a it's a, a real shitty way to ruin a nice walk." Is what I always <laughs> tell people, yeah. right? Because I suck at it. People that are good at it, maybe you like it, but <clears throat> duck hunting and waterfowl hunting is different than turkey hunting. Yes, or deer hunting, right? Because yeah. the camaraderie, the ribbing, cooking in the blind, cutting up stories, mm-hmm. all the stuff. Then your dog looks up and you see him, you hear the, you hear the wings, whatever. Right. Right. Talk to me about the people though, about what it means to you over the last three decades to see the people that have come through here and what that means to you as a person to have those memories, those stories and those friendships. Well, I think first off, uh, you've got to kind of have the mentality and the personality uh, to, to be a people person. And that's what I am. I listen to a lot of people and I talk to a lot of people and I kind of chose this because it was something that I was real interested in waterfowl hunting and had started at an early age. And so I surrounded myself and I would put myself in a position where I would bump into those people or at least be able to talk to them. And so over the years, you know, I continued on that plot and tried to, you know, uh, and get in front of as many people as I could and find out, uh, how they did it, what they did, and what was good and what was bad, and and uh, how they how they um, uh, experienced waterfowl hunting and and what they what they did in the blind, and you know you kind of have to just kind of bump along and figure out what's going to happen, and so that that's kind of what I would do, and I would get along with people, and you're right, boy, you can get in that blind and talk to people and and really get to know them real good uh, in a in a in a duck hunting blind, whereas. Uh, as you made the comment about golf, you know, you're jumping in now that uh, cart or walking and you're not really, you know, you don't really have the exchange. So um, I, I think over the years, it's just been a, a, a process of of, uh, of uh, getting with people that, that are interested in the same thing that you are and 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 uh, visiting with them and getting their ideas and listening to their stories and their experiences and building on that. Do you hope that in 10 years from now when you're 90 i still mind blown on this but do you hope that this tradition is carried on in the right light as far as what you've helped build because you've helped procure this lifestyle in this area of the united states people look up to you like i said you're a mentor to people like trey Mm -hmm. what are your visions in this podcast by telling me what your what your goals are or what your legacy will be because of this building and this homestead and your family name, your career, your military, your military um, life, your, your law enforcement life. What is your legacy? And what do you want people to be able to, in 10 years when they walk onto the law dog lodge, what do you want them to think about? Well, I think, you know, um, uh, I have a son that had an accident, bad accident, and, and he was the legacy. He was going to be the next in line, you know, to take this whole thing over. And he's so he was so interested in it, and probably even maybe a little bit more so than I was. He was more energetic, and and if there's a possibility of being more interested, he was. Um, 
I, I, I would, uh, you know, I encourage everybody, just like this morning, we, we hunted with uh, a fellow over there, and he brought his uh, three children, a 12-year-old boy, a 9-year-old girl, and a 5-year-old girl. And they were in the blind with their dad. And I thought that was about the neatest thing, you know, that, that, you know, that's building that legacy. And those kids were real interested in hunting and they stayed real, real quiet. And they knew when to open the blind and when to shut the blind, you know. And so, you know, if, if, if I have anything to do with building the, 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 uh, the hobby, uh, it would be, you know, let's get the kids, the young people involved in it. That's, that's what I would like to do. Well, I think that, you know, any kid would be lucky to share the blind with you. I think that this place is on a different level of cool. I just noticed the boxing gloves here. I'm going to probably put both of those on with Dan Henderson, who's coming to visit us tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I would like to see you put those on and fight Dan Henderson tomorrow night, <laughs> yeah. if you don't mind. Well, I've watched Dan Henderson several times, and and uh, it's kind of an interesting story because uh, while I was uh, employed at the State Bureau of Narcotics, one of our agents retired and took over the uh, Oklahoma uh, athletic commission which oversaw all of the um uh, mma uh-huh, mma fights and so they would hire the agents to be uh inspectors or judges at those meets or meeting or at those fights and so uh, i did that for a number of years and that's where the gloves came from those are boxing gloves but i really kind of got more into the mma and of course dan henderson you know is not a stranger to me i've watched him fight many times on tv and uh along with all those others so it's kind of a hobby of mine i've always enjoyed you know the uh boxing and the mma especially this is gonna be a fun week then yeah it will be we have cody cannon lead singer of whiskey myers texas band one of my favorite bands right Mm -hmm. now yeah amazing music we have dan henderson coming in yeah we have Brian McGee coming in, who's the founder of Gator Coolers. Oh, yeah. With yeah. his brother, Mitch. They're, Mitch isn't coming. He couldn't make it. And then we have Rob Roberts, who you know. Yes. Our yeah. gunsmith. He's uh-huh. going to come over for a day or two and shoot with you. Great. So the law dog is bringing in so many different walks of life. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I've always said about waterfowl hunting. It's like all these different walks of life that make up this law, lifestyle. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you could be out there with a five-star, four-star admiral. You could be out there with a fighter pilot, a garbage sure. man, a janitor, yeah. a, a police officer like yourself. And like hunting is just like this melting pot of so many cool people and stories. And I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I think your story is amazing. We're going to come back with part two with you because I want to get into this undercover. I want to get into this narcotics because <laughs> – I mean, just right down the road in Tulsa is becoming world famous on the show, The First 48. <laughs> yeah, First 48. And yeah, I watch uh-huh. it religiously. I, I have too, for yeah. every season. I think it's in like yeah. season 17 or something. But police work, um, it's very intriguing to me because it's taken for granted. It, it really is. is. And I want to get your thoughts on what's going on in today's oh, the climate, the temperature, what's yeah. going on today with the police and the support. Yeah. Let's talk about that next time with Mr. Russ Higby on part two of the Foul Eye podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for supporting all of our partners and sponsors. Thank you, Bodyguard Bumpers. Thank you, Flatline Outfitters, Blue and Trey. Thank you for all of your dedication and passion and rolling out the red carpet for us yet once again. Oklahoma, <clears throat> the Foul Life podcast. My name's Chad. For my guest, Russ, we'll be back with part two with Russ very soon. This song is called My Foul Life. The band is 2AM Logic. Bye.